The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Thank you, Rolf. Hey, so this is a picture of Jonathan Edwards. How many of you ever heard of Jonathan Edwards? Yeah. Okay, so actually a handful of us have. If you haven't, I guarantee your favorite, uh, you know, Christian teachers and heroes have. Um, if you haven't heard of him, you may have even heard of his most famous sermon, which was called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He preached it on July 8th, 1741 in a, a church uh, just outside Massachusetts. Um, so in, his, in that sermon, just to sort of set the tone of this sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, here's some of what he said. He said, The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you. He abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. O oh, sinner, consider the fearful danger you're in. It goes on from there, obviously. But eyewitnesses who were there that morning, listening to that sermon, say that the congregation was, was terrified. And there were interruptions to the sermon. People would stand up and scream, what must I do to be saved? There was fainting. Folks were grabbing the pillars in the room in order to keep themselves from being swallowed up by the floor, which they, they thought might happen. Um, some people might call this religious trauma today, but, but uh, by the end of the sermon, you actually couldn't hear when Jonathan Edwards got to the good news because there were so many people moaning and screaming. Now, in the sort of Reformed evangelical tradition, Jonathan Edwards is a rock star and he's had a huge influence. And, 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 and again, most of our favorite teachers and, and heroes have been shaped by Jonathan Edwards. If you've ever listened to a sermon or read anything by John Piper, for example, there is no John Piper without Jonathan Edwards, and, and I could go on. And so his, his influence in many ways has been very good. Now in scripture, the Apostle Paul warns us that eventually there's going to come a time when people aren't going to tolerate sound doctrine, but they're going to become consumers of teachers and teaching that just gives them what they think they want to hear. And so the Apostle Paul tells Timothy, sort of his young protege, he says, I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead, and because of his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and teaching. And I know that when some people think uh, of that phrase, preach the word, some people have in mind sort of a Jonathan Edwards style sermon with its effect and its, and its goals. But, but just so you know, that's not the only approach to teaching that Christians practice. One, if, you're, if you come from sort of the Anabaptist tradition, maybe the Quakers or the, the Brethren, they practice in their gathering an open sharing approach to teaching where, where everyone has an opportunity and, and when it's your turn, you stand up and you share something with the congregation that you think is going to encourage them. So there's not like one professional teacher. Everyone is the teacher. If you're from sort of a high church, maybe the Orthodox or the Anglican or the Catholic tradition, because your worship centers much more around communion, 
teaching isn't really a huge emphasis. And so there would be a whole bunch of scripture readings and a very short homily, maybe nine or ten minutes, but not a sermon as such. And if you were from the more sort of modern or maybe postmodern tradition called like the deconstruction approach, sort of the, what the group called exvangelicals, for them, instead of answering questions from scripture, they're really trying to question the answers. And so there's a, it's a conversation. And, and then there's the mainline churches. And then there's the charismatic churches. And, and in each of these different traditions, teaching takes a different form based on their values and their beliefs and their goals for that gathering. And you might wonder, like, well, which is best? And, and that's an important question. We're going to talk about that today. Now, we are in this series called Liturgy, and we're asking, what are we doing when the church goes to church? And today's focus is on teaching. Like, what is the role of the word in word and table? Like, what's our goal here? What do we hope happens? And so I'm going to give, I'm going to share some ideas with us here over the next little bit, and then we're going to break out into our breakout room shortly after um, so that we can discuss this a little bit further. But we're going to come to the answer what our goal is for the word and word and table. We'll come to that as we answer three questions. And, and, and the three questions are this. Where did the sermon come from? Like, where did a Sunday sermon come from? How did Jesus teach? Okay. And then what should we expect? So I'm just going to dive right in with where the Sunday sermon came from. Because I think that this is really helpful and interesting. Because I don't know if you realize this, but, but biblical teaching, biblical worship changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament. I don't know if you realize that or not, but, but for most of the Old Testament, you've got God's people gathering in Jerusalem in a temple in order to give an offering of an animal that's going to be sacrificed by a priest. You remember that? And then all of a sudden you get to the New Testament and you have God's people, the Jews, who are gathering in these synagogues all over the place, listening to sermons. So have you ever wondered, like, how did that happen? Well, the answer is exile. Exile is what happened. So near the end of the Old Testament, Israel is conquered. The temple is like toast. The temple is destroyed and the Jews are taken prisoner out into Babylon. So they don't have access to all of the familiar sort of worship trappings that they had before. And so it's for them, it's like, it's all over, right? Well, no, they improvise. And so church historians explain what happened. One of them says this, his name is James White. He wrote a book all about worship. He says, survival for Israel meant the ability to remember God's actions that had made them a distinct people. No temple was needed for this kind of instruction or worship, nor were priests needed. It was a type of worship that lay people could lead. Anywhere 10 Jewish men could gather, a synagogue could be formed. All that was needed was a book and people. And as past events were recited, they became present reality through which God's power to save could be experienced again and again. And the, the spoken word was the medium through which this occurs. And I just think that's so important for our conversation today. Because in the synagogue, what happens is you've got a teacher who stands and takes a turn to share a message from Scripture meant to remind us who God is and what God has done. And he might make five or ten different points and, and application uh, ideas in order to persuade people to be faithful and to include God in their lives and to obey God. And the elders would gather around that speaker and they would listen very, very carefully and, uh, and they would ask questions. 
and they might ask the teacher to go on and say more. Or they might challenge the speaker because something that, that he said was not quite right. And so they might challenge or correct the speaker. Or they might thank the speaker and invite him to come back another time. So that's what happens in the synagogue. And, and, and you should, you know, we ask, like, why does this matter? It matters because God didn't tell the Jews to build synagogues and preach from Scripture. That was their idea. What we, what we find is God's people asking, how do we keep from forgetting God? Like, how do we keep, how do we remind ourselves who we truly are? And so they decide, uh, quite pragmatically, actually, we're going to meet in synagogues. We're going to listen to the teaching of Scripture. And, and even though the temple is rebuilt, okay, even though the temple is rebuilt by the New, by the New Testament, it still became the pattern for God's people. They're going to meet in synagogues, not because it's commanded, but because it's what they knew they needed. And that's why in Luke 4, we don't find Jesus offering a sacrifice of a bull. We find Jesus offering a sermon. And so in Scripture, there's all kinds of sermons all, all over the place. We could look at the Old Testament and, and look at Jonah and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and, and on and on. In the New Testament, in the Gospels in particular, we have sermons recorded by, by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. We have the Upper Room Discourse, uh, and we could go on. We have in the Book of Acts sermons by Stephen and Peter and Paul. And we have the, the Book of Hebrews itself is a sermon, a lot of people think. And so there's tons of these sermons in Scripture, and of all of them, I think that this one in Luke chapter 4 really matters because this is where Jesus shows us what sermons do. Like he, sh he shows us what teaching is supposed to do. And so I want to go to Luke 4 now and ask, how did Jesus teach? Okay, how did Jesus teach? So we're going to look at this passage, uh, which, Paul, which, which Rolf uh, read for us a, a moment ago, and we're going to sort of break it down. Because um, I don't know if you know this or not, but every teacher has their own style. You know, like they each, uh, you know, bring their notes to the pulpit and some of them might bring a word for word manuscript or they might bring sort of just a point, very short point form outline. Just so you know, I'm somewhere in the middle and this is an example of what I preach from. This is what I bring with me when I, when I, when I preach and I find that really helpful. Now I actually, I bet Jesus was more of a point form outline kind of guy. And so I thought it would be fun this morning if we sort of reconstruct his outline based on what Jesus taught in Luke chapter 4. Okay, you with me? So we're going to sort of reconstruct Jesus' outline based on his sermon in Luke 4. Because where he begins, he begins, you know, as many sermons do, you know, when you're sort of the guest speaker, probably thank them for the invitation. So great to be home in Nazareth. Love what you guys have done with the synagogue. And he goes right for it. He reads the scroll of Isaiah 61, just verses 1 and 2. And he leaves out the part about God's vengeance. Uh, and, and he leaves out the part where God has clothed him in the garments of salvation. And he leaves out the part where God has wrapped him in the robes of righteousness. And he does that, I think, because he knows that they're familiar with the passage and they're going to get the point. So he's going to leave that part out. So instead, what he's going to do is he's going to skip his five points and he's just going to make one point in this sermon. But that's about me. That's about me. 
and and he knows there's going to be some confusion. So he's going to leave a few minutes for the confusion to set in, and that's okay. He's going to let them feel it. Because after that, he knows that they're going to say, all right, doctor, well, heal yourself. Like, why don't you do the things that we heard you do in Capernaum? Why don't you do some of those things here? Do a trick for us, Jesus. Like, prove yourself. And Jesus is going to say, no. I'm not doing that. I'm not doing a trick for you. And there's two reasons for that. Reason number one, Elijah didn't have to do that. Like when Elijah did his miracles, there was, there was tons of people who were sick in Israel. He didn't heal them. He healed a Gentile widow. Uh, he healed the, 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 the son of a Gentile widow in Zarephath. So, so Elijah didn't have to do it. And neither did Elisha. When, uh, when, when Elisha was ministering, there were all kinds of lepers throughout Israel that he could have healed if he really wanted to heal God's people. You know, his, the miracle that he performed was reserved for this evil king, Naaman. So Elijah didn't, Elisha didn't, and I'm not going to do that either because I'm greater than either of those guys. And Jesus knows that that's not going to land well. Like, I'm going to do whatever, I'm going to do the things that they did. Uh, you guys have known me my whole life. You've heard the stories of me. If you don't believe by now, you'll never believe because I grew up in this town. You want more proof than that? I'll tell you, here's your proof that I am who I say I am. I'm out of here. Bye-bye, Nazareth. When they get offended, you let them. When they kick me out of the synagogue, I'm going to let them. When they try, when they take me to the edge of town, I'll let them. And when they try to throw me over the edge of the cliff, I'm not going to let them. Instead, I'm going to move on to Capernaum and I'm going to really bust it out and I'm going to do, I'm going to cast out some demons from the people in Capernaum. So for Jesus, he knows that if his message goes well, he's actually rejected. You know, if he's rejected by the people of Nazareth, that means that he nailed it. And I want to make a couple of observations about this message, okay, that I think are really important for us. Number one, we need to make an observation about Jesus' context. He, he didn't reuse a sermon that he had preached elsewhere. You know what I mean? He, he didn't recycle this message. He prepared this message for these people in Nazareth whom he knew really well. And that's really important, I think, because good teaching has a context, okay? See, I don't know if you know this, but good teaching goes two ways, not just one. Because, like, yes, a teacher gives you the truth, and gives you good news, but it is measured, and it is, it's prepared, you know? But in return, you give your teacher something, too. Like, you give your teacher trust, and you give your teacher attention, and you give uh, visual feedback to, to your teacher. That's why a, a good teacher can tell whether you've heard too much or not enough, or if the teacher needs to pause and slow down and maybe say things a little bit differently because things are landing badly, okay? So teaching goes two ways, and that's why somebody like Tim Keller or John Piper or N.T. Wright or Rachel Held Evans or Jen Wilkin or on and on, that's why these people can't be the main source of teaching and truth in your lives. They just can't. There's going to be all sorts of things that you and I can learn from these teachers, but they don't know you, okay? There's no, there is no relationship. You know what I mean? See, when you're invited to repent by somebody after you've read their bestseller, 
that lands on you differently than it would if you're invited to repent by somebody who has been in your home and who has, has held your children and has cried with you in the hospital. Just so you know, I am not saying that I believe that I'm on the same level as these teachers. I'm saying that just as Jesus brought the teaching that he believed the people of Nazareth needed to hear, in the same way, the elders of benediction and I, we are trying to bring the teaching that we think is going to be helpful for this church, in this place, at this time. In other words, the word needs flesh. Amen? The word needs flesh. There is no substitute for that because teaching, teaching really is a relationship. Teaching is a relationship. And I think that's important to observe about Jesus' context. And the other thing that I want us to notice is Jesus' goal. It's his goal. Okay, I want you to imagine that you are Jesus and you're, you're giving this message, all right? Now, what was your goal in this sermon? Was it to be like invited back? Because if it was, just so you know, you failed. Uh, was, was Jesus' goal to build a fan base and sort of collect likes from his audience? No. His, and, and again, if that was his goal, he failed. Maybe you wonder, like, was his goal to educate his audience? Like, was, was he trying to help them figure out the incarnation? Well, if that's what his goal was, he failed at that as well. And so what was his goal? I think his goal was actually exactly what happened. I think that his goal was actually rejection. Jesus' message is, I'm the one that, G- that Isaiah foretold. That was about me. Everything is going to change because of me. And so are you with me or are you not? I, I think that this sermon was this like great unveiling. And it's, it, it ends exactly the way that Jesus wanted it to and exactly the way that we needed it to. That's his rejection. See, Jesus has got to be the only teacher who succeeds by failing. He's got to be the only teacher who succeeds by failing. Now, you, you wonder, like, how could that be Jesus' goal in, in this sermon? It actually reminds me of a scene from one of the most recent Star Wars films. So hear me out here, okay? So in The Last Jedi, there's this scene between Yoda and Luke. And where Luke is this old man, he's full of regret and he's discouraged because all that he sees when he looks back over his life is all of the mistakes and failures that he's made as a teacher. And so his old mentor, Yoda, shows up from beyond the grave and uh, and speaks to him in order to encourage him and, and sort of get him to wake up and, and, and get back in the game a little bit, right? This scene brings me to tears almost every time I see it. Because I think it reminds us, Yoda reminds Luke, what good teaching is about. See, Luke says, here's what Luke says. He goes, I was weak. I was unwise. I can't be what Ray needs me to be. And Yoda says to Luke, heeded my words not, did you? Pass on what you have learned. Strength, mastery, but weakness, folly, failure also. Yes, failure most of all. The greatest teacher failure is. Luke, we are what they grow beyond. That is the true burden of all masters. And that's what I've got ringing in my ears as I watch Jesus finish this sermon and the people who heard it rush him to the edge of town and try to kill him. Okay, He succeeds by failing. His teaching works when the rest of us take over for him. 
when we take over for him. Jesus is willing to be rejected by Nazareth in order that the church comes along a little bit later, steps in, takes up the gospel for themselves, and takes it to the nations, and transforms the wider world. Okay? Jesus' goal isn't popularity. It's not fame. It's not uh, education. The aim of Jesus' teaching is to transform the world. And just so you know, that's our goal too. Like every time, every time that we open this book, the goal is that you will hear good news and God is going to remind you how he loves you. He will remind you who you really are and what he's done for you. And he's going to confront you about some things in your life that maybe need to change. Maybe it's something in your beliefs. Maybe it's something in your attitudes. Maybe it's something in your lifestyle. That's what we're doing here. That's what we're doing here. And so the last question, what should we expect? All right, what should we expect to happen in our teaching? Um, here, I have five things that I think are really important that I, that I think we're trying to achieve in our teaching. Number one, I think good teaching corrects or it confirms assumptions that we might not even be aware we have made. Okay, it corrects or confirms our assumptions. Another thing that I think good teaching does is it allows us to imagine how our lives would look if we trusted Jesus to satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts instead of whatever we are trusting in right now. All right, it invites us to imagine life with Jesus as Lord. I think that good teaching makes the truth accessible for everyone. You know, it makes it, it shows that the truth doesn't belong to conservatives and it doesn't belong to progressives or any other team, but it makes the truth accessible for everyone. I think that when teaching happens well, I think that it challenges us, it persuades us to repent, to put down whatever it is that keeps us from Jesus, whether that's the bad things that we might do or the good things that we might do for the wrong reasons. Good teaching challenges us to repent and put those things down. And I think the last thing that good teaching does is it sends us out on mission. It sends us into our context on mission, knowing what it looks like to live as ambassadors for Christ. And that's the goal. That's what we're doing here. All right, that's the role of the word in word and table. And I am so passionate about seeing this happen. I, just so you know, I will do whatever it takes. I'll use any tradition, I will teach for an hour. I'll teach for 20 minutes. I'll wear a suit and tie. I'll wear a robe. I'll wear a dress. All right. I'll wear a face mask or I will get across from the, the from a, a table and I'll teach in person or I'll teach on Zoom or I'll teach on YouTube and, and, and I'll do monologue or I will do dialogue or I will do whatever the situation requires in order to teach us well. I'll do anything to achieve, I'll do anything for this short of sin, all right? I'll do anything short of sin. That's what you can expect of me. That's what you can expect of me. Now, can I tell you what I expect of you? Here's what I expect of you. I, I expect that you pray for me or whoever it is who is bringing our teaching to this gathering, okay? We need to be in prayer for that person because the attack is intense, okay? I, I, I expect that we're going to show up expecting God to speak through this book. Expecting God to speak through this book. Show up 
trusting that God himself has something to say to you and me every time. Every time. That's what we expect. Okay? Now, where do we go from here? I began by talking about uh, Jonathan Edwards. And what I didn't tell you is that I actually got to attend worship at his church back in 2011. It's a church just outside Boston. It's it's a big old, massive old church. And I actually brought Maggie with me. Uh, and by then I'd been a, a pastor for a couple of years. And I had read a lot of Jonathan Edwards books and, and sermons. I had written papers on him. I had taken a master's level course on the theology of Jonathan Edwards. And so obviously I brought Maggie because why wouldn't she want to go? And when we got there, we walked around and it felt like holy ground. At first, at first it felt like holy ground. And then, and then we started noticing stuff like in the, at, at the front of the room, we noticed the rainbow banners hanging at the front. Then we noticed how during the service, the choir led us in this hymn to the God of rainbows and living color. And then we noticed how they didn't mention Jesus in the service. And we noticed how they called God mother. And then after the service was done, they allowed us to walk around and explore a little bit. And I found, the, uh, I found this bronze portrait, this relief of Jonathan Edwards. And I had seen this on the cover of a dozen books and, and blog posts. And I noticed that the bulb above the relief was out. And so nobody could see it. And then I found this chair that I'd, I'd been looking all over for. Uh, I had read about this chair that Jonathan Edwards handmade. And I, I wanted to see it because I'd, I'd read all about it. And, and I found it behind a curtain in the building. And I actually had to remove a pile of clutter in order to take this photo. And then eventually, we found Jonathan Edwards' Bible. Like the Bible that Jonathan Edwards preached from. And it was on display under a glass case like an artifact. Like an artifact from generations ago. And it seemed to me... You know, back in the day, hundreds of people gathered in this spot to listen to Jonathan Edwards teach the Bible. You know, once upon a time, this spot was the center of the Great Awakening. And tons and tons of people were coming to faith in Jesus because of the ministry of Jonathan Edwards. And today, it's a museum. It's a museum. And it's not even, it's not even a good one. And so... You know, no matter how well-known Jonathan Edwards is among evangelicals today, it's like the people of his hometown want to forget him. And when that clicked for me, when I realized that, my first thought was, man, what a fraud. What a phony. Like, what what a fake. He totally failed. That was my first thought. And I totally judged him. And I was actually, from there, I was super discouraged. Because I was like... If Jonathan Edwards' teaching leaves no discernible like imprint on his hometown, what hope is there for my teaching? Now, for the record, I'm not saying that I'm on the level of Jonathan Edwards, and I am also not saying that I love Jonathan, everything that Jonathan Edwards taught or practiced. I don't, and we can talk about that. But, but, but my thinking on this has changed, just so you know. And I don't think that we can judge a teacher or their teaching based on its impact on the town. Because you know what else is true about Jonathan Edwards? Nobody ever tried to throw him over a cliff. You know, and and so far, nobody has tried to to kill me because of something that I taught. 
And so the, the point here is that we can't judge good teaching or a good teacher simply based on who likes it and who doesn't. Amen? Because, because here comes Jesus, okay, in Luke 4, and he is the ultimate teacher. He's love incarnate. He is himself, the word made flesh. There is nobody in creation who knows his Bible better than Jesus. And he came preaching good news and love and mercy, and it was rejected. His message was rejected, and they tried to kill him. And as you know, that wasn't the last time people tried to kill him. They, eventually, they would keep trying, and, one, and they would finally succeed. They would put him to death, and his death looked like the ultimate failure, except that his failure is our victory. He did that for us. Jesus did that for us. And so Jesus is a different kind of teacher, and that means a different approach to teaching. Okay, He doesn't only teach the truth, he embodies it. He lives it, and he dies for the truth. And that means that when we gather like this, Okay, when you and I gather like this, we are not well taught if we only come away believing what Jesus believed. And that is important. That is an important part of what we're trying to do. But we call that orthodoxy. And that is not our only goal in this gathering. Because Jesus also wants us to do the things that he did and to stay away from the things that he stayed away from. And we call that orthopraxy. Okay, we call that orthopraxy. But Jesus also wants us to love what he loved and to hate what he hated. And we call that orthopathy. Now we would agree, I think, that we don't want to be a church of orthodox people who are jerks. Amen? Like that is not what we're going for. God help us if that, is, if that ever becomes true of us. But if we become a church of nice, gentle heretics, that is not better, all right? And, and if we become a church of orthodox sweethearts who never share the gospel, that's not better either. And so I am pleading with us, let's expect God to speak in this gathering. Let's prepare ourselves for that. Let's, let's expect that, okay? Let's expect to hear the good news and to be transformed by the power of God for salvation. That's what we need, right? We, that is what we need, and, 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 and so does this city. And that, I believe, is what we're doing when the church goes to church. Let's pray. Thank you for listening.